Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Dennis Berger about building a caring culture at Suffolk Construction. Welcome to the Indispensables. I am so happy to have Dennis Berger on. Uh, I got to know Dennis Berger when he was at CDW, another client. He's now Suffolk's chief culture officer. Suffolk is one of the leading privately held general building contractors in the country uh, with billions and billions in uh, revenue and thousands of employees. Uh, and Dennis Berger is one of the great human capital management experts, a great uh, one of these um, HR leaders who's transformational. Uh, and I'm so thrilled to introduce you all to him. Uh, Dennis Berger, welcome to the Indispensables. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. I'm glad to be uh, glad to be a part of this. It was a great introduction. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, uh, I was blown away by uh, what you all had done at CDW. Uh, it's such an incredible company. And now that I'm getting to know Suffolk, uh, I'm not going to give you all the credit, but gee, uh, it seems like where you go, uh, really positive corporate culture goes. Yeah, thank you. No, it's it's funny. One of the things I learned at CDW, uh, our founder, the CDW's founder had a saying, happy coworkers make happy customers. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I really, although, although it makes so much sense to me, it re, I didn't really see it in action until I got the CDW. And, uh, and that's been a, a kind of a, a principle or philosophy that uh, since the day I heard it, when I joined CDW, I've just kind of kept top of mind. And it's something that uh, as I've you know, moved over to Suffolk, kind of keep that same philosophy in mind happy coworkers, happy employees make happy customers and if you have if you have happy customers then most likely you're going to have positive business results and now you're in the uh in the great city of boston in the great commonwealth of massachusetts uh uh from which i am uh, native born yep that's true <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell people, what's your basic story? I mean, how does somebody get to be you? You've been doing this for 30 years. Um, and uh, so what wh What was your, what's your story? Yeah, I'll tell you, Bruce, I've been blessed to, to work with very, very fortunate, blessed, I should say, to work with, uh, work for some really great leaders, leaders who took an interest in me, took an interest in my career, who guided me. And that's something I've tried to give back as uh, as I've led people um, over time. And so it's interesting. I, I started leading people actually when I was 23, uh, right out of school. I, I took an operating role uh, working for a trucking company um, in upstate New York, in Syracuse, New York. I I, uh, I went to Northeastern undergrad. And, and those that know Northeastern in Boston, it's a co-op institution. So you're basically... You're either in school or you're working in a you know, in a co-op assignment where you're getting paid, almost like an internship, and um, you know within your field. and And I remember when I was graduating Northeastern, and I was working in HR assignments uh, with a company. And when I was graduating, um, the, uh, the the person I was working for at the company that I was at 
gave me some great advice. And he said, hey, Dennis, you should really find a job, not in HR, but find a job where you're going to lead people in an operating environment. That's where you're going to learn a lot about HR. And, um, and, and I took his advice. I had a minor in transportation and logistics. I interviewed with a, with a trucking company. Uh, like I said, it was it went to upstate New York, started there, and I, uh, 23 years old, leading, um, you know, uh, 50 to 60, this true story, 50 to 60 Teamsters. Uh, the majority of men, I think there were two women. Um, they were all in their 40s and 50s. So here I am, 23 years old, um, leading, you know, folks that are much, much older uh, than me much more experience. And, uh, and it was probably to this day, probably the toughest job I ever had. It was one of those jobs where you were on a, a loading dock 10 hours a day, um, basically leading people, giving direction, leading people. And what I learned in that job, Bruce, was that it wasn't about me. Uh, I, needed the, I needed them more than they needed me. And I'm so glad at an early age, um, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was taught that lesson. Boy, that is uh, such a great story. And I, I, uh, I didn't know that about you. And there's so that, that opened so many questions for me uh, that I didn't know I wanted to ask you. Uh, it's, it's like the story you hear from uh, brand new graduates of, uh, you know, who from ROTC or uh, who come out of West Point, who go in as second lieutenants. And uh, and they find themselves leading a whole bunch of grownups who have been around the block, you know, uh, more time, more, more times than uh, than the years they've been alive. And uh, uh, and, and, and and then trucking logistics. I mean, you know, people think, oh, yeah, trucking. But but of course, the complexity uh, of, of running, uh, uh, receiving and shipping and and uh, transportation logistics, uh, it's 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 quite complex. You know, it, it really is. And, and not to get too far into this, but uh, the trucking company I worked for wasn't like a UPS or a FedEx where they're small packages. These were big, you know, big packages, big pieces of equipment, et cetera. And, you know, you would have anywhere from 40 to 50 trailers being unloaded that, you know, the stuff getting unloaded had to go on other trucks. And so you had to really have a sense of what was on what trailer, what was going where. Um, et cetera. It was not a, you had everything in your head. And, uh, and I, I just remember it was so hard to leave work because you're, you're trying to transfer all this knowledge in your head of, hey, this isn't over here, this is over there. And that was always the, uh, the toughest part. But that's why you had to rely so much on, you had to really trust the people that were working for you because, you know, as you can imagine, right, you don't have to be part of the trucking industry or try to have knowledge of the trucking industry to kind of understand you know, if you have misloads, um, stuff gets delivered to where it's not supposed to deliver it or gets to a city that it's not supposed to be at, um, you know, you can lose a lot of money in a hurry, especially with uh, loads that the, the size that, um, you know, that we were dealing with. Yeah, well, you lose money, you upset the installers, you upset the, the, the salespeople, of course, you upset customer service, and most of all, you upset the customer. Yeah, exactly. And, exactly. and, uh, and, and you're making reference when you say leaving work because to do a shift transfer, right, you have to explain everything to whoever's picking up the, the baton. Right. That's exactly right. And that was always, that was, like I said, always the challenge. I, again, I was 23 years old. I remember coming back home after 10 or 11 hours and I'm like, oh, geez, that I remember to say this. I remember to say that. 
And, you know, this was in, uh, what, 88, 88, 89. So you didn't have the technology that you have today where you could pick up your phone and uh, send an email or a text to say, hey, don't forget this, don't forget that. So that's that's the other thing, too. Like over time, you think about, you know, you think back in the day and you didn't have the things that you have today to be able to communicate, et cetera. Yeah. And it's, you know, uh, uh, this is a great segue because I want to ask you about your approach to to building work relationships and 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 building influence with others, and she has a a, a brand new twenty three year old manager uh, leading uh, fifty teamsters. Uh, you know, for those who have not palled around with teamsters before, you know those guys uh, uh, are not easily impressed, right? And no. uh, one of the things they have in their back pocket, I'm guessing you heard a lot, is "Listen, kid." Right. No, that's exactly it. it it's interesting, Bruce, and this is something that I, uh, I I didn't really realize this, um, the impact that it, that it had on, on kind of who I am and what it meant at the time, probably till 10, 15 years later. But I'll tell you a quick story. So within a Teamsters environment, obviously you're working within a labor contract. And, and the one thing that folks have that are in a labor environment is they have something called seniority. And that's very, very important to them. And so, you know, you, you have to follow seniority. And so, a story that I'm going to share with you. And again, at the time, I just realized, I just thought it was the right thing to do. I didn't realize, like I said, until years later of, wow, you know, that was, that was so smart in many ways. I didn't realize how smart it was. And it helped kind of guide me in terms of the person, the, the HR leader that I am today. But, but I, I remember this um, and my wife can vouch for this because I remember coming home and telling her the story and she has vouched for it many times. But in, um, like I said, this was back in upstate New York in Syracuse. And, and Syracuse is also the host of the New York State Fair. So it's in August, the State Fair is going on. We're working on a Saturday. Um, again, have about 50 to 60 folks on the dock. It looked like it was gonna be a busy day. Typically days were 10 hours. There was always, you know, there was never an eight hour day. It was always eight hours plus two hours of overtime. And I remember one of, um, you know, one of the team members came up to me and he said, hey, Dennis, he said, you know, I got the, what kind of day do you think it's going to be? I got the kids today. He was obviously divorced. And he said, I'd love to take them to the fair, to, to the state fair. And I think it was like the last weekend or whatever of the fair. And and I remember his name was Chet. I can't remember his last name, but if I think hard enough, I'll, I'll come up with it. But I said, Chet, you know, it looks like a busy day. I, I'm not sure we're going to make it out less than 10. We may be longer than 10. But I said, let's see what we can do. And, and as the day went on, my mission became, how can I get Chet out of here so that he can take, and again, I'm, I, and, and I hate to say this doesn't, I hope this doesn't sound hubris or whatever. I didn't know, really know what I was doing, to be honest with you. I just thought I was doing the right thing. And so my mission became that day of how do I get Chet out of here so that he can take his kids you know, to the state fair. And as the day went on, I remember we got to like hour number eight, and it did not look like we were going to get out of here in 10 hours. It was just, a, a, Saturdays were always fallacious. And, and one of the things I did is I said, okay, Chad is number 20 on the seniority list or 25, I can't remember, but he was pretty far, you know, into the seniority list. And one of the things that I did is I went to each member. So I went to the person with the most seniority and said to them, I said, hey, you know, we probably got another two to three hours of work. Chet would like to, you know, um, take his kids to the fair. Is it okay if I let Chet go ahead of you? And I had to do that 
20, 19 times or 23 times, whatever number that was in front of chat. And, and it just instinctively became the thing that I, you know, that felt like the right thing to do. And, and I did that. And I probably had about five folks say, no way, you know what, I have seniority. If anybody goes home, I go home, you know, type of thing. And so I made my mission to say those four or five people, I said, okay, you know, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. And to eventually I got to chat. And I think it was only like four or five people that said, no, the rest of them said, no problem. You know, um, you know, of course, check and go ahead of me. And again, Bruce, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And that's the other thing I've kind of learned throughout my career. But it had such an impact that from that point forward, I got to tell you, I never, never had any issues, never any challenges. I do remember coming into work on Tuesday because I was Tuesday through Saturday and my manager not being happy, you know, that I did that. Because, you know, his concern was, hey, you just set basically a precedent. <laughs> no, there's going to be the expectation that everybody's going to do that. Because it's not an easy thing to do, to go down the line. And because it, it takes time away from everything else. So, so in a long-winded way, it, it's a story that I, again, I didn't really grasp until maybe 10 years later. I, I, I love that you shared that. That There's, there's a, a, a real, there are some kernels of, of, of brilliance in that story. And I see why it has stuck with you. Because uh, here you are trying to uh, get a whole, as you said, there's still a whole bunch of trucks. You said Saturdays were hellacious, right? My guess is one of the reasons they're hellacious is you're understaffed because the people with the most seniority don't want to work on Saturday. And there you are trying to navigate, right? Trying to make sure that the the big equipment gets off one truck and onto the uh, right truck and goes to the right place. You're You're still doing all that work. Yep. And meanwhile, what you're really doing is your mission that day was to take care of one of the team, take care of your troops. And the way you were doing that was by uh, inquiring with uh, his colleagues. And, uh, and, and, and in doing that, you're doing so many things. So yeah, you know, um, uh, uh, a cynic from the workplace of the past might say, oh, you're setting a precedent that a manager will bend over backwards and jump through hoops to take care of one of the team. And then they think that's not good. <laughs> right. Yep. Whereas everyone else true. is like, everyone else is like, wow, you know, cause even, you know, yeah, of course, Chet and, you know, forget Chet, Chet's kid is psyched. I mean, he's going to the state fair. Right. Um, but, but, but then all the colleagues are noticing what you're doing there. It's not like Chet's your best friend. You're just looking out for them and you're trying to get those other people to cooperate in, uh, in, in helping out their colleague. And what a, what a great story. And it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's the, it's the complexity and the nuance and all the, the intangibles involved in that. Uh, I think, uh, that's why stories are so great because you, you know, how do you get your arms around that without that story? That's, that's a beautiful story. No, and that's and again, that the beautiful thing was I didn't know what I was doing at the time and, and stuff. It's so that's that's the thing that um, you know that was really as I thought back ten years later, it, it was like wow, you know, I, I just it was it was hard to believe that uh, you know that I had the wherewithal to kind of know to kind of do that. But it, but it also goes back a little bit, Bruce, to um, you know people ask quite a bit, what does it take to be you know, an effective HR leader or, or a leader in general. And 
And I always come back and I say, hey, it's it's really just two things at the end of the day. It's common sense and good judgment. And um, and that's that's all it really takes. You don't you, you know, you, of course, you got to have IQ, you got to have EQ, etc. But but really, the, the two things you really, really need are just common sense and good judgment. Um, and and I think that's what guided me that day. It was kind of the common sense thing to do was say, OK, how do I make this happen? And, and I did it using good judgment without violating a labor contract and getting a grievance filed against me. So, yeah, but, you know, imagine like some people would say, well, the common sense there is there's a protocol. Um, and yeah, sorry, Chet, you're not a special case. Whereas, of course, everybody's a special case. It's just some people are good at hiding it and some people are good at denying it, you know. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, the, 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 the common sense could have gone that could have gone a different way. And what I see there is, is something, uh, uh, an instinct to take care of people and to take care of the human element. And I, I, one of the things I'm really curious about, and I have not been able to answer this question, I guess probably great philosophers have not been able to answer this question either. So I'm in good company, but you know, is, is, is that caring for people and putting people first? Is that, something you can learn, or it sounds like, I mean, here you were young um, and relatively new in your job, and yet you you went for that. Uh, let me, I'm going to take care of these people, uh, even though, you know, what it resulted in uh, maybe uncommon practice, you know, that sounds like uncommon sense to me. Yeah. So can you, can you learn it or can you, can you, um, can it be taught to you? I, that's an interesting question. I'll, it's interesting. So here at Suffolk, you know, one of our, if you were to ask about the culture at, at Suffolk, the one word people would use, and it's actually one of our core, it's one of our core values, is is the word caring um, itself. It's it's a core value, and it comes right from our founder. He really, really, and, it, and it's funny. I go back to CDW with the founder there. You know, happy coworkers make happy customers. You know, caring is embedded, you know, in that statement. So it, it, I've even thought about this myself, about how people that, that you know, founders, people that build comp that create companies, they inherently know this and stuff. So how do they inherently kind of kind of know this? That hey, in order for me to build this company, I got to make sure that I care about my people. And so, so like I said, it's something. It's one of our. It, it's a good question because it's one of our values. People live it, but I think it's also like with any company that hires, right? Part of the filtering process is you know, how do they align with your culture? And so I think we, we find people that when we interview, when we hire that um, in some way, shape or form, we kind of filter in the folks that, you know, have this kind of caring attitude. Yeah. And I, I think if you go around to corporate conferences and corporate headquarters, as I do, um, and you'll see a lot of banners and coffee mugs and stuff that say people first, uh, but but not all companies uh, manage to live their values. Not all companies manage to really do that. And um, what I love is that your story about uh, Chet and the State Fair, uh, you know, is in, in, in a, a bunch of Teamsters. And here you are at Suffolk with, you know, let's face it, it's a construction uh, outfit. And I, I, I realize there are plenty of highly educated and, you know, savvy and uh, sophisticated people there. But the culture of a construction business, again, you, you know, you think about rough and tumble, you know, a bunch of tough guys. Uh, you don't you don't think about 
caring as being the centerpiece of that culture. No, it's a great point, but it's but it's so true because, you know, we again, we rely on we have a lot of bright people that are solving problems every single day, building these, you know, massive 50, 60 story buildings and, you know, uh, the different things that we do. But at the end of the day, just like at, you know, I learned at St. Johnsbury and with the trucking company I worked at and, and I guess throughout my career, again, it's all about the people. And so for us, especially the frontline people and for us at Suffolk, it's the tradespeople. You know, the, the folks that are highly skilled, they're the ones, you know, literally, you know, building the building. Those are the ones that we have to, that's where caring really comes into play because um, those folks have a, because they're, it's a, those are skills in high demand, um, they can decide kind of, do they want to work for you or somebody else? And so the caring really, really helps us um, in that way. Folks see that we are a caring company. They want to work for and be part of a caring company. Yeah, and it's uh, as as uh, the chief culture officer, it's your responsibility to make sure that gets all the way down to the front line, right? Because um, in 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 a workplace like yours, of course, it's dispersed and people are out there actually building big buildings and stuff. But uh, one of the things I've learned over the years is that. Um, it's, it's a lot harder to control or to build uh, the culture or to remove obstacles or remove toxic uh, uh, elements in the culture. The further down the chain of command you get, the, the harder it is as a, as a senior executive um, to, to monitor and, and affect that stuff. No, it is. And that's why you use tools like, you know, pulse surveys, um, you know, you hear them as engagement surveys, you know, et cetera. You know, you, um, and that's one of the things that, you know, uh, again, throughout my career, you know, I've learned, you know, I've learned that at Pep, the value of surveys at Pepsi, you know, we use them at CDW, use them now at Suffolk. And that is one of the ways that leaders, you know, can stay in touch with, you know, what is truly happening at the frontline level. And one of the things that, that actually we do, Bruce, at, at Suffolk, is we have a, so we have over, I think, 110 projects going on right now. And a typical project is anywhere from, you know, um, you know, about, just about three years, three to four years to kind of build a building, that type of thing. And, and what we do is we do these project level surveys and we do them twice a year. So every six months, and there, there are 15 questions. And what we tell the project team is that, hey, this is not a gotcha. This is not, and it's questions around our values and, and, and things like that, our culture, you know, et cetera. And what we tell the project leaders and the project teams is that, hey, this is not a gotcha. We want to make sure that you have information at the project level so that, you know, as a team, you guys can get better. Um, now, obviously, it gives us information where we may see, we may see some projects, you know, that are far to the left of the, uh, you know, the curve, you know, and say, oh, geez, we got to watch them, kind of what's going on. Maybe they need a little bit more help than, uh, you know, than others, you know, et cetera. But we try to make it as a, this is a tool for you. It's, you know, this is not a, you know, hey, um, you got bad results, what's going on, you know, type of thing. So, but that is one of the ways to your point of how you can, how you can kind of stay in touch at that frontline level. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. And, uh, you know, much of what I do is, uh, you know, I always joke that I've never had a job. I just follow people around and watch them work. Uh, but, uh, but that's much of what I do is I go try to talk with people because, you know, even those surveys, one of the things I've learned is sometimes you, 
you don't find the bullies or the ringleaders or the cliques or frankly, the superstars who are uh, working diligently and quietly and biting their tongue down on the front lines. Um, and, and one of the ways to build a, a culture uh, is to make sure that people on the front lines um, are not exposed to negative influences unnecessarily or facing obstacles that they don't know how to share, or frankly, that there are people the organization has got your arms around, as you say, hugely in-demand uh, skilled workers um, who maybe have a lot more to offer, but they don't know how. No, exactly. I, you know, and I think one thing you said something that just got me thinking, it's, you know, you have to listen, you know, at that. And that's the other thing we talk about, we talk to leaders about is that you have to listen, especially at the front line. And, you know, what you, what you realize, especially in this day and age, if, if you're not listening to your team, they're going to find somebody that will listen to them, right? So if they're, if you have a team member that's experiencing an issue, whether it's an equality issue, I mean, you name it, um, um, development issue or whatever, if you don't listen to them, they'll find somebody. So they may find an attorney, they may find a third party, you know, uh, EEOC or some, or they may in the, this age of social media, go to Glassdoor. Um, they're going to find somebody who's going to listen. And that's one of the things we try to impress upon leaders all the time is that you have to listen to your people. If you don't, folks will find a way to get listened to and it, it, it may not like it. We may not like it. So. Yeah. Nowadays, they might find a way to get listened to in the uh, in the ecosphere of the Internet. That's exactly right. That's it. through through uh, social media, things like Glassdoor and uh, there are a whole number of things that they you know, go on, go on Twitter and, and say things. And so, you know, the, the stakes are, the stakes were always high if you didn't listen, but they're even much higher now because of that point that, that you just made. Yeah. It's a huge democratization of uh, the ability to communicate and put out messages and gather information and so on uh, that all of your talent up and down the chain of command has access to, uh, which is, it's, it's still in play. It's interesting. How would you, so caring for people, uh, what are the other values and sort of integrity issues uh, that you see as central to your success and what you bring to an organization? Yeah, I think just the um, the word integrity itself, right? And I, I, you know, some people say that's table stakes, but that's too easy to say it's table stakes. You, you have to keep integrity in front of people, you know, all the time. There's story after story, right, that we've both seen over the years, where, you know, you look at organizations, uh, I won't call any out, but because you could you, you hear about them all the time, where, you know, you see integrity is one of their core values, but you know what, they have integrity issues. And the reason why is because they have pressure to perform. And, you know, one of the things, and I learned this back in my day at Pepsi, I worked for somebody and he, and he said, hey, you know, uh, something to the effect that, you know, hey, the numbers are the numbers, right? And, you know, don't try to change them. And, you know, say, tell them what the story is and tell them what your action plan is. But, you know, don't try to satisfy, you know, somebody by, um, um, you know, by changing numbers. And so, again, from that experience, you know, I've learned you always got to keep integrity, you know, top of mind, you know, with people because it's just, it's just too easy, especially with the pressures that people face to perform and show results um, to, um, you know, to ease up on that. 
Um, so I, I think beyond caring, integrity, you know, is number two. And again, it's not just table stakes. You've got to keep it in front of people. Um, and then the other thing is, is always, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's necessarily, I don't know, a value, but it's, it's seeing things through the eyes of our people, right? You, you hear salespeople all the time say, we need to see things through the eyes of our customers. Well, it's the same thing with HR people and I guess leaders in general, right? You have to see things through the eyes of the people that you're leading and how are they going to interpret this? And, you know, what are, you know, how are they going to feel when you say this or when you roll that out, you know, et cetera, putting yourself in their place. And um, I think that's something else that's, you know, that's really important. And that's, that's back to kind of like one of those filters, right? Before you do something, you know, put it through that lens, put it through the lens of, you know, how is somebody going to report to me? Um, going to think about this. And it is amazing. I still, I do that myself today. I'll write an email or, you know, I think about saying something and, you know, I say it and I said, okay, now if I were reporting to me, how would I interpret that? I'm like, oh, geez, wait a minute. You know, maybe, you know, it sounds better, you know, it sounds good kind of coming up, but as I'm on the other end, I could misinterpret that and think like, oh, geez, Dennis is, you know, is he, is he scolding me? Is he, you know, that type of thing. So, Right. Whereas on, on, on your side, you're checking off one of your to-do items. On their side, they're receiving something from their boss. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I'm glad to use the term table stakes um, when you're talking about integrity, because um, it, it, the way I always put it is, you know, don't lie, cheat, steal. Uh, you know, uh, that part is table stakes. The hard part of integrity is what you're saying is, you know, being truly mindful um, uh, of, uh, how people are being affected and having the guts to stand up and having the guts to do, uh, difficult things or, uh, question, uh, the numbers if, if they're not right, or, uh, th those are the hard parts of integrity. And, uh, uh, I think they all come back to, to fundamentally to valuing and respecting people, treating people truly with, with respect. Yeah, that's it. And, and giving people, letting people know it's okay, you know, if you mess up. And one of the things, you know, I keep this kind of running list over the years of, you know, of uh, different things of folks, you know, uh, uh, things that people have said to me, other leaders or things I've learned from other leaders. And, and again, this was, you know, fairly early on in my career, I, I worked for somebody and he used to say all the time, there's nothing you can get yourself into. I can't get you out of. You know, unless it's unethical, immoral, blah, 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 right? Illegal. And, um, and, and I got to tell you, I remember hearing that, you know, at an early age and sitting there thinking that was the most empowering thing somebody, and I use it all the time with my teams. My teams have Pepsi and CDW. Now it's something will tell you, I've heard Dennis say that a lot. Because for me, it gave me so much uh, confidence that, and I trusted him. I trusted him that, okay, if something goes wrong, I do trust him. I do believe what he's saying, that he'll, you know, he'll, he'll get me out of it. And, and, and again, as I, you know, got older, I realized that statement was so powerful for two reasons. One is it was powerful to me as a, you know, as a direct report. Two is it also showed his confidence in himself as a leader. Um, that he truly believed that, hey, you know what, I can say this with confidence because I believe that I can do that. And that's what you look for in leaders. You look for leaders that are confident in themselves. You don't want wishy-washy, et cetera. But I always love that statement. There's nothing you can get yourself into I can't get you out of unless it's unethical, immoral, legal, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
I like that it's can't because, uh, right, if you find out you can't do something or you fail because of a lack of, you know, ability, skill, resources, um, uh, misapprehension of how something's going to go, um, uh, the unexpected, uh, that you know you have a leader who's going to back you up uh, and uh, provide support and uh, if you do something you're not allowed to do, well, then you might get in trouble. If you do something you shouldn't do, then we want to see how you made your decisions, right? Right. Uh, but uh, but but knowing it, nobody needs a weak leader, and and the only ones who want weak leaders are people who are hiding. I I think. No, I totally agree with you. You're right. That's when work is no fun. When you have a work, when you have a weak leader, where they're wishy washy, you're not sure where you stand, and. You know, that's that's when people get stressed. That's when the anxiety comes into play. And it's just not uh, it's just not fun. Um, so are those the keys from your perspective uh, to building influence with others? When I think of influence, of course, you're you know, you're a, a C-level leader, so you have lots of actual authority. But, you know, I'm always trying to figure out this this influence thing, the thing that really doesn't depend on authority or stand ins for authority that for me, the real influence is when other people, they want to work with you. They want you to want to work with them, that they, that, that, that it's because of how you show up and how you conduct yourself and how you treat people. Is it all about, uh, uh, treating people with respect and caring, uh, having people know that you do not just the table stakes parts of integrity, but the hard parts of integrity. What else do you do to build influence with others? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think on top of what you just said, Bruce, I think trust, right? They have to trust you, right? And if, if people trust you, then you can influence them. And, and and it goes, but whether it's, you know, direct reports or my peers or my boss, right? If they trust you, then, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're saying something, um, it, it, they're, they're, it's going to have a little bit of meaning behind it, right? Versus if they don't necessarily try, eh, you know, I don't know, Dennis embellishes a little bit, or I'm not sure I could really trust, you know, completely what he, you know, that type of thing. That's where you got to really be careful and you got to make sure that that folks really trust you and, and how you create trust is by doing like I just said, right? Don't embellish, be straightforward, have a point of view. Um, that, that's something else I learned from a leader at, at Pepsi was, you know what, if you're in a meeting, you better have a point of view. Otherwise, why are you here? And and sometimes having a point of view, you know, means it's going to be, you're going to be very candid. And it may be something that, um, you know, that's, you know, somebody else may not like your point, but you have a point of view. And I think those are the things that create trust because they feel like, hey, you know what, the, you know, Dennis isn't telling me or so-and-so isn't telling me what I want to hear. Um, they are being candid, et cetera. So, so all that kind of goes into that trust bucket. And I think that allows for you to have influence and for folks to um, kind of respect and follow you. Yeah, I, I, I always try to, to uh, dig into that question because, you know, it's become conventional wisdom. Oh, you have to have influence. You need to build trust. But I love to get people like you to, to tell s stories like the ones you have because, um, I think it's so real and so powerful and, and, and yet it's intangible. Um, and, and some people, you know, think it's, Oh, that's the soft part of relationships. Whereas, um, I, I believe it has tremendous business value. It's not just about feeling good and making other people feel good. Uh, I think it drives people's cooperation, collaboration, extra effort, creativity, commitment, 
No, and especially, especially, for, especially in an HR role, right? Especially in a CHRO role, because, you know, I'm going to have peers that are going to share things with me that they're trusting that I don't share with our boss. And, you know, maybe a struggle that they're having or and vice versa, right? You know, our, our boss is having, you know, challenges or whatever, and they're asking me for my opinion. And so it takes on anybody who wants to move to the, to the C-level, especially in, a, in an HR position, uh, really, you know, as I think about it now, trust is everything because you are going to hear things and, um, you know, kind of both ways and folks are putting ultimate trust, you know, in you. Um, and, um, you know, you violate that trust, then, you know, um, it's like a house of cards, right? Uh, at that point, I'm not sure how you can be effective. Um, you know, once that trust is violated. So you got to be really, really careful. And that means uh, keeping confidences. It means uh, fulfilling your promises. It means uh, being careful about really listening. You said listening and hearing people and uh, giving them the confidence to, uh, to tell you what's real. Exactly. And I, I think one one other thing, a um, little bit off this stuff, but on the influence piece is that, you know, what I found is that if you're viewed as a problem solver, you know, there are problem creators and problem solvers. If you're a problem solver, that also helps in, you influence others as well, because they, they, they begin to see you as somebody who's, who's truly there to help them, not to just pile on or not to create other problems or create problems that you are there to help them, right? So you may identify, you know, a, a challenge or a problem, but bring solutions, you know, to the table. Just don't identify it, right? Because in the eyes of that person, that could be, you know, you're creating a problem, um, you know, just by identifying it, you're creating it. And so, you know, bring bring solutions, be a problem solver, you know, identify it, but bring, bring solutions to the problem that's gonna help the person that you're um, uh, trying to influence. Um, and that, again, that's just another tactic that uh, folks begin to see you, you know, as somebody, as an influencer, you know, within the organization because you've built those relationships. Yeah, when somebody knows they come to you, they go to you, and you're a go-to person who can solve problems for them, that's a pretty valuable currency. Yeah, I remember when I, um, uh, right before I became a CHRO, um, at CDW got way back in 2005. And I was talking with a friend of mine who was a CHRO and I said, you know, any advice? And he said, Dennis, he said, the one thing you got to keep in mind is your number one job with the CEO is to ease their pain, not add to it. And it stuck with me all the time because I'm like, you know, it's, it's so true because, you know, CEOs have a tough, they're, they have a tough job. I mean, you think about internal uh, stakeholders, external t- stakeholders, you know, et cetera. Every single day, you know, uh, those are really, really, you know, challenging, tough jobs. And, you know, your, your job as an HR person, I always love that. It's to ease their pain, you know, not add to it. And, and in other words, right, be a problem solver, not a creator, not a problem creator. I mean, and that, that would be underwritten by uh, philosophers going back uh, long before Aristotle. So that's, uh, that's, that's pretty solid. <laughs> Uh, uh, so, so let me ask you, as we, as we bring this to a close, uh, I always ask this question, um, uh, how does somebody get to be like you? If you're talking to somebody who's early on in their career, they look at a guy like you and say, wow, you, you made this monumental career in this zillion dollar 
uh, business at CDW, and uh, now um, uh, you're doing the work of of uh, solidifying and ensuring and helping to take to the next level the culture of a zillion dollar construction business. Um, how does somebody get to be like you? What's your best advice? Yeah, I would say, well, I'd start with advice, right? I, I think number one, seek advice. And I go back to, you know, when we started this conversation, you know, talking with the person I reported to during my co-op assignment and the advice he gave me, it would have been easy for him to say, and by the way, there was a job I could have, he, he would, he, he could have hired me. And he said, Dennis, I have a, I can hire you tomorrow, but I think it's better if you go do this. And, and so I think number one, and I've, and again, I've been, as I also said in the beginning, I've been, you know, very fortunate and blessed to work with, you know, really great leaders who have took an interest in me and my career and have given me really, really tough feedback, including one time when, uh, you know, I, I went to my, um, to my boss and I said, geez, you know, I don't understand, you know, why, you know, she got the job over me and, and I was having a tough time and he was very blunt. He said, Dennis, because she's better than you. And he was right. And, but he didn't candy coat it or anything else. And, and it was, you know, the be, you know, probably one of the, um, you know, the best pieces of feedback I ever got. And it was as blunt as that. And so it gave me a chance to say, okay, get that chip off your shoulder. Um, take a look at what made her uh, a better candidate than you and get better. And so, you know, getting advice from people, not just people who want to tell you, you know, tell you what you want to hear. So I, I would say that's number one. Then the, the, the second thing is um, you know, take advantage of opportunities and projects. You know, there's always projects going on in organizations. I don't care what organization you're in. Raise your hand. It doesn't have to be a project within your function or your discipline. There could be another project you're aware of and say, hey, I'd love to get a, I'd love to, uh, you know, be a part of that project, et cetera, right? Those are things that give you exposure. Um, and then, you know, take, um, you know, take positions outside of your comfort zone. You know, there's, there's always a career path, right? A lot of times the career path is not always vertical, right? A lot of times it's horizontal to be able to go vertical, and, you know, on those horizontal moves, take jobs that are outside of your comfort zone, but jobs that are really going to test you in a lot of different ways. And, um, and that's what I learned. And, and I learned that through the advice that I got of people I work for who would say, no, you've got to go take this role first or that role first. And a lot of times they were roles where I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I'm not sure I could be successful in that role. I don't have any kind of knowledge or experience in that role. And but but again, it's it, those are the things that kind of really test you. So like, like go lead a bunch of teamsters. Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. That's a good point. Well, that's, uh, that's brilliant advice. So take advice, even if it's advice you don't always want to hear, raise your hand and be willing to take on projects or get involved in projects, even if they're, uh, not an obvious fit. And even if they're horizontal, uh, that's sometimes the right path. That is great advice uh, from a, uh, uh, an incredible person. And Dennis Berger, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. No, thank you, Bruce. I really enjoyed this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. In our next episode, I'll talk with my old friend, Sherry Thompson, who's executive vice president and head of FHA Lending at Walker & Dunlop. 
If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.